How's it going there, everybody, and welcome to episode 160 of Master My Garden Podcast. Now, this is, uh, well, this week's guest, I guess, is somebody I've been trying to get on for a while, um, and is definitely one of the, I suppose, the brighter, the brighter young horticulturists within the Irish horticultural scene. Um, it's, it's an interesting episode in lots of levels. So this week's guest is Paul Smith. And there's lots of things going on. Belfield House, he has just become the head gardener there, which is, you know, being run now uh, and taken care of by the RHSI. And he's gone in there as head gardener. And there's a bit of a backstory there and a, and a previous connection there with Paul and Angela Jupe, who was on this podcast actually on the 9th of April uh, 2021 in episode 64. And we spoke about Belfield House quite a bit. And unfortunately, not too long after that, uh, Angela passed away unexpectedly. And since then, Belfield House, you know, has been left to RHSI and Paul has taken over as head gardener. And Angela was somewhat of a mentor to Paul. So it's, a, it's sort of coming full circle here. Obviously, then on top of that, for, you know, there's been lots of other things. Uh, RTE DIY SOS recently, I saw Paul was on that. Uh, he obviously, garden, garden conversations with Dermot Gavin all through sort of the two years of pandemic stroke lockdowns and he has a, a podcast under his belt and obviously a book which came out last year. So there's there's so much to talk about. But firstly, Paul, you're very, very welcome to Master My Garden Podcast. Thank you very much, John. Great to be here. Yeah. Uh, nice to have you on. Uh, there's lots we can talk about. I suppose the obvious place to start is your, your recent appointment uh, as head gardener to Belfield House. And I suppose it's it's an honor, but it must be, uh, I suppose, a little bit of a of a bittersweet pill in a way given yeah. your connection to, to Angela and so on. But firstly, congratulations on that job. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're going to do over the next couple of years. But maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and the backstory and your connection with Angela. Yeah, well, listen, thanks. Um, yeah, as you say, it's uh, uh, as you say, a, a double-edged sword sort of thing because um, I came here just over 10 years ago, uh, or just under 10 years ago, as a student of Angela's and it was when I was working or studying down in WIT and yeah. as part of that uh, course down there you do I think six months or however many months of placement so basically you ah, so that was how your, your original connection was the placement yeah yeah it was a placement Brilliant. and Angela yeah. wasn't even the first person on my list to be honest um, I think I even told her that uh, I tried to get <laughs> somewhere else and they wouldn't answer the phone long story short uh, yeah. I ended up uh, ringing Angela. I had a cousin who didn't live too far away. I asked her, you know, what about Angela? And she said, yeah. And Angela answered, and that was that. I came here just over 10 years ago and have been back and forth ever since. I worked here for that entire summer in the end and have always been a good friend. And Angela was someone who sort of uh, mentored me and always, you know, pointed me in the right direction and would always be keen to know what I was up to next. So, very yeah. much that kind of figure in my own career, no matter what I did. And she was always, she knew everything I was up to. So, you know, she was very much, we were in touch right up to the end. And she was, um, yeah, one of those important uh, figures, I suppose. And yeah, here I am now. So, yeah, it's a funny one. It's a, it's a funny one, but it's nice as well. Yeah, it's de it's definitely nice. And, and I'm sure I'm sure Angela is extremely delighted that, you know, you you are there now, continuing, continuing it on. Um it's it's funny Angela was on the podcast and we spoke a lot about uh, about Belfield and you know she described the place very well 
and my plan at the time was to get over quite soon afterwards to to see the place and and to meet her in person and that didn't happen um but we spoke about Belfield, but maybe tell us in your words about Belfield and, and what she has actually, you know, established there. And then maybe like from what I know of Angela and from I heard you speak around the time um, that she was obviously forward thinker, uh, an innovator. She did things that other people would never think of doing. And I think I remember you talking about a story of going sort of out of the blue on a on a to a plant fair in the UK and it just came out yeah. of nowhere with a phone call and 10 minutes later you were on the move. Yeah, yeah, so maybe just give us a flavour of, of uh, Angela first and then we'll talk about Belfield as it is now. Uh, yeah, so I mean she was an extraordinary woman really, um, you know, uh, very much a self-made woman and uh, worked hard her whole life, uh, bought and sold various different properties, uh, was trained as an architect originally through a scholarship up in Dublin um, but her passion was always plants, and she did tell me that you know if she couldn't, if she had to pick something when she got the scholarship. And the closest thing that she wanted to do was architecture. But had she the opportunity, I think uh, she would have studied horticulture because that was always her number one passion. And uh, that evolved into her eventually studying um, landscape design and becoming a garden designer and opening various different businesses. She had a garden furniture business up in Dublin in the eighties. She eventually became a garden. I think garden architect was her kind of preferred term where she kind of worked on gardens, but took right. the side of architecture. So was always interested in garden buildings and that type of thing. And anyone who ever sees yes. that builder hopefully will see it. Uh, you'll see that here. She has lots of her kind of signature garden buildings, the main one being in the middle of the garden, her fantastical folly, as she calls it. Um, and that yeah. was a, it's a big old copper roof that I think she bought at an auction over in Birmingham sat in a friend's garden for a long time and ended up eventually uh, being sent back over to here and she put it together and she was always a collector too that was another thing she did um, wherever you went with her in the car she'd always sort of tell you to stop and pull over and look at this you know yard of things <laughs> for sale or she'd be pulling over to dig up plants that she thought the order up on the side of the road or you know she was that type of person um, a real character yeah. and, uh, someone who you know once you met you never forgot she was um and once you were interested in the subject, which I mean, so obviously the two of us were very interested in gardening, so we just uh, we got on very, very well. So, yeah, uh, uh, quite a character, uh, quite a trailblazer. You know, she was a woman in architecture in the 70s and 80s in Ireland, which in itself was hard enough, but uh, she wasn't someone to suffer fools. So I think she was the right woman in that job and uh, did lots yeah. for that cause as well as many other things. And she set up the GLDA uh, she was on the board at the RHSI. She was, you know, what she did throughout her life was extraordinary, really. She has a whole list of things that she sort of achieved. And um, I suppose Belfield was her final project and the thing that she put lots of uh, thought and, you know, energy into. And when she first came here, uh, I think 2005, 2004, the place, the house was uh, occupied, but the rest of the whole place was derelict. The wall garden was overgrown and she basically spent the last however many, 15, 16 years of her life, putting it back together and really bringing it and creating something extraordinary out of a very wild and what was a beautiful place, what she saw when she viewed it here initially as a very beautiful mm-hmm. place. So, yeah, um, quite came quite away from when she first came here, just, you know, not that long ago, which you kind of have to uh, realise too. But, yeah, she did a lot in a very short time. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, for sure. And uh, as I say, I, I'm, when we were speaking you know, previous to, to, to tonight's conversation, um, I didn't know Angela at all, except for a couple of conversations on the run up to that recording. Um, 
But one thing that stood out for me was she was amazingly energetic when it came to talking about anything to do with gardening and not just not just from the point of view of talking about her own garden, but just in general, talking about it as an industry and about people within it. Um, and you, you could see that that and I can understand why she would have been involved in the GLDA and, you know, the promotion of horticulture and the promotion of people within horticulture. Yeah. Um, and I know, um, you know, she obviously had quite a lot of respect for you as a gardener as well. And I, I think that, you know, that would have come true. And she would have mentioned that during the conversation as well off air. And uh, so, yeah, it's it, it's nice now to see it, you know, the, the way that it has come sort of full circle in a way. Yeah, she was um, very much, uh, when you say that, uh, you know, very passionate about people and uh, I guess the next generation of gardeners and training people. And if someone had an interest, she would try her best to sort of nurture that and help you along the way. So if she saw someone with a genuine interest, she was very much, you know, of that. And that's partly why uh, she has decided to leave uh, Belfield to the RHSI. There's a big part of that in her sort of plan uh, was with that in mind, I guess, looking to the future of gardening and gardeners in Ireland. So, yeah, uh, fantastic. Really, really good. I know it's early days as such in terms of, you know, the the overall plans for for the place now and you know in terms of your your involvement and all the rest of it but maybe tell us a little bit about what the initial plans are i know there's some you know there's some quite exciting things just in the next few weeks with snowdrop season and so on um but maybe tell us about those short term and and is there any kind of longer term plans starting to come into into place at this yeah there absolutely is and i suppose the main long-term plan in her will she very specifically uh, left it to the RHSI, but kind of with the proviso that it would become their training garden, that it would be used to train gardeners, that it would be open to the public. And there's a list of 20 different kind of, uh, you know, wishes, if you will, that she had left in her will. And that's kind of been used as the framework to which we'll build Belfield around, basically. So, um, you know, okay. she had left these very specific things. She did speak to me once when she was alive about this and her sort of plans, but you know, like all things, she mentioned it very briefly in passing on the phone during lockdown when I was chatting to her, which we were chatting very regularly during, especially the first lockdown. Yeah. Um, and she asked me, would I sort of like to be involved or would I be involved sort of thing? And I sort of said, well, I'd, I'd love to be, but can I sort of, you know, can we talk about it? And she said, yeah, sure. And we never got to talk about it again. So then this all happened and, you know, I didn't know what had happened or anything. And then a couple of days after we sort of learned of her plans. So yeah, very much the long-term plan would be to get gardeners here to train them, to use it as the kind of hub garden, the central garden of the RHSI. Bit like over in the UK, they have RHS Wisley and they have all of their big gardens um, open to the public. Yeah. That would become, this would become kind of a centre of horticulture, centre of gardening. And I suppose a, a centre of excellence in gardening would be the ultimate kind of goal and dream here that we would, you know, train new gardeners. People would come here off their various courses, uh, do a couple of months training, learn how to garden here, learn very much in Angela's way. You know, this is a beautiful yeah. garden, uh, just to describe it. There's two acres of wall garden. Uh, there's another two acres so of ornamental woodland. We've got about 10 acres of uh, kind of plantation woodland and then 11, 12 acres of pasture at the front with old parkland trees and things. And there's even a little bit of bog in that and wetland. There's a small bit of everything here. You know, the whole site is okay. only 20-something acres, but within that small site, we've got a small bit of everything, um, and we'd be looking to develop the entire site, you know, with that in mind. And I know Angela okay. would have, I suppose, that was her idea too, to use, utilise everything here um, with that goal. 
Yeah, that that's like it, it. It's brilliant. It's really, really brilliant to see something like this happening, albeit in the early stages now. Um, because yeah. you look to our nearest neighbours, the UK, and you talk about places like Wisley and you know all of that, and in a way you'd be envious that they have these sort of centres that that you know students can go to, that gardeners can look to for inspiration and and education, and I suppose we've had pockets of it here, but not not in any sort of organized way so it's good to see something like that in the pipeline uh and more in the pipeline i suppose it's it's beginning now so um yeah yeah definitely definitely uh, you know that's a super lots in the pipeline here there's lots to do i mean the garden is far from perfect at the moment uh you know and yeah. but we are kind of working to that and uh you know ultimately it won't happen for the first probably year that we'll have that type of thing happening here but the first year is more about getting yeah. the place back up and running getting it open again um, and with those ideas of Angela's in mind, always in the back of our mind, this is kind of happening now here in this country. And we can, you know, as you say, we can look over to see the models they use. And uh, hopefully that will be helpful in some ways. But we very much take it, our own twist on it and do it uh, to suit this country. So, yeah, no, it's exciting times and hopefully uh, lots of exciting stuff ahead. For sure. Um, we'll take a little bit step back, if you don't mind, Paul. Just tell us, obviously, so you've, you've been to uh, WIT uh, to study horticulture, but just give us a little bit of your sort of early days in horticulture, and and obviously WIT is part of that. Um, we're sort of piecing it together a little bit. But when did you sort of get involved in horticulture? Was it just at that course time, or was it prior to that? So I grew up in a farm in Carlo, and I think when I, you know, time leaving certain that wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Knew I was interested in outdoors and cooking and food and everything. So it kind of fitted nicely that I would do a degree in horticulture. And with the idea, I suppose, that I might go back and grow fruit and veg there in Carlo. And when I when I went down to Waterford, I kind of it opened my eyes. We went to uh, Kildalton College too. We did a lot of our course there. And when yeah. we did the plant side then, that kind of opened my eyes to the whole other side of horticulture, which I hadn't really considered. And at the time, I kind of thought this was a bit daft that we're doing this. But... I suppose it really did make me think, oh, maybe that's more what I want to do. And that's how I ended up deciding, number one, that I wanted to go down and do a placement in Belfield. I also went to a nursery um, to try that out. And yeah, that led me down all sorts of different routes. And then um, when I was down here, uh, I learned from Angela about snowdrops. And that sort of also kind of led me down, not another rabbit hole, but something that I became very interested in, you know, the snowdrops and the collections of them. And I actually went over to the UK to work for someone who had a collection. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up initially starting off, trying to do one thing, deciding that I actually really liked the ornamental side of horticulture and uh, ended up over in the UK because of, uh, again, through Angela and through the connection of working here. So, yeah, it's funny how it all sort of ties together. Yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting actually listening to that because I went to Warrenstown when it was a horticultural college back in the yeah. day. And uh, initially going in, I had been working in garden centers. I had worked in nurseries, a uh, little bit of landscaping and so on. And that was sort of the, the side I was kind of interested in going in. And during that time, because that was very much, well, it was a lot of what they were doing there horticulturally was around food crops. And I actually almost flipped back the other way well, you had um, the opposite. to what you, to what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Now I don't like I grow veg here and fruit here just for ourselves, but my interest is very much on that side of it now. Um, whereas yours is, is a flip. It's in the opposite direction. It's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose what it really did open my eyes to when you study in horticulture, you know, it really can 
there's loads and loads of different things you can do and I just realised that the whole world of plants was really fascinating and all the different things and yeah I ended up working over in a nursery then in uh, North Wales for a long time after that and uh, you, you know I sort of took a step away from well you never take away from gardening you know I was always doing a little bit of gardening at home or wherever I was and mm-hmm. yeah I suppose um, you, you all it's in the back of your mind you're doing a little bit one way or another you never never really leave it um, but I suppose yeah what you do professionally compared to your hobby uh, even though the two overlap a lot especially when you're a gardener uh, it's kind of hard to yeah usually not uh, turn off one and just have the yeah. other <laughs> yeah for sure um so tell us about you know individually the plants the planting types i know we spoke about i spoke about that on episode 64 with angela but maybe tell us about it. there's a lot of i know there's a lot of peonies over there but snowdrops obviously we're hitting snowdrop season yeah i didn't realize that snowdrops was kind of a, a passion of yours either so maybe tell us about snowdrops obviously that's the first thing that's going to open the doors or open the gates of, of Belfield again I guess. Yeah so we're going to the last two weeks of February we're going to be open to the public again um, and kind of officially kind of doing a, a soft launch as they say so you know opening slowly and getting ourselves kind of uh, back ready for crowds and all that here so figuring all that out but yeah, yeah snowdrops they're a huge part of Number one, Angela's passion she was mad into them and she used to go collecting them from anywhere and everywhere and as you said they're one of these trips with Angela was when she rang me at nine o'clock on a Friday evening and asked them what was I doing. And I was saying, well, I'm not doing nothing tomorrow. So then she said, get on the 2 a.m. boat. I'll meet you down in Rosslare. And across the <laughs> across we went, drove over to London, went to the snowdrop fair, got there for seven o'clock. We were first in the queue and turned back that you know afternoon and went back to Rosslare for that night. So it was all a bit, you know, but this is what some of these people who are mad into snowdrops do. And uh, she yeah. sort of at first and, I was a bit thinking ah you know I'm not going to get bitten by this and this is all a bit funny but I did um, and I became very interested in it and that's how I ended up working with them but yeah it's a fascinating thing because I suppose no doubt they're the first things that really you know that pop up in the year and you think oh god this yeah. winter is never going to end and now like the last week here to be honest we had a cold week here um, last week this week is a lot warmer again yeah. and the change in a week in this garden is Extraordinary, you know. I've known this garden for the best part of a decade, but I've never spent this much time observing it because obviously now I need to help more than in the past. Um, yeah. It's kind of my responsibility now. But the change in a week, just in the amount of flower and the amount of little snowdrops popping up their heads and the cyclamen and coom opening up and all those early spring things, just so it's fantastic. So yeah, snowdrops are the main kind of plant here, but we've got lots of other collections. Got great collections and uh, naturalizations of cyclamen. There's great collections here of daffodils. Uh, tulips were a huge fashion of Angela's. Now, we don't have, a, we planted some tulips this year, but the tulips here, we've got kind of heavy clay in the Midlands, so we're not, not heavy clay, but yeah. we've got a soil that doesn't suit kind of tulips coming back year on year. So we've got a few here, but next year now, we'll be really focusing heavily on the tulips and getting them back up to scratch. So, yeah, and then iris, a huge collection of different iris. Um, in parts of the garden, peonies, loads of Japanese peonies, roses. Angela used to go over to France a lot. She took a lot of inspiration from France and worked there a little bit too and enjoyed it. And she used to bring back plants and roses from French nurseries, old varieties of roses that you mightn't get anymore. Loads of them, um, clematis, uh, and rose, everything. Uh, you know, there's a small bit of everything here. Very much a kind of mixed style of planting. Um, you know, we've got borders packed to the brim really with everything and anything and kind of successional planting so I was out there today clearing a border that's planted in snowdrops but 
I know that border from now right through till October, November time will have something pretty much in flower or with interest in it. So uh, there's a good, really good succession of planting in some of the borders. Uh, they all vary. We've got loads of different, you know, the wall garden got four great aspects and four kind of different places we can try all types of gardens. So yeah, it, it's a huge variety and yeah, nice to be able to work with all these fantastic variety of plants. Yeah. Um- Am I right in saying that it is the largest snowdrop collection in Ireland? I could have that wrong now, but I yeah. have a feeling that somebody said that to me, or one of it's them. one of them. Definitely one of them. I mean, there is a couple of different snowdrop gardens in Ireland. Uh, probably the best known of them would be Altamont over in Carlow. Yeah. Not far from where I grew up, actually. Uh, that is a fantastic... Yeah, not far from me yeah, either. Yeah, that's a great garden. If anyone yeah. who... If you've never been to Altamont, well worth a visit. Because um, it is just a magical garden and uh, very yeah, it's yeah. worth a visit at any stage, but it's definitely worth a visit during during the snowdrop period for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for a couple of weeks, for most of February, to be honest, uh, well worth having a yeah. look at. And uh, the other one being a few different ones, I suppose. But Belfield uh, Ultimate and Jimmy Blake, he's uh, very much gone mad collecting them in the last year. So his is a well, yeah, they, I think I saw that Jimmy had 500 varieties or something. Yeah. No. Or heading for, heading for 500. I, that's fairly substantial. I don't know if we have that many here. And I know the labeling here needs to be dealt with, but that's another job for myself. But we've got, uh, <laughs> we've definitely got, uh, I suppose what we have here are some of the best naturalized snowdrops. Um, you know, because snowdrops on their own, if they can go for mad money, they look fantastic. There's all sorts of different quirks about them. But when you see snowdrops on mass, you know, a few thousand plants um, in a lawn or in the Yeah, there's nothing like it. Yeah, that's where it really looks great. And that's one thing we do have yeah. really well here. And we hope to establish that and continue, you know, making all areas at the front of the house, basically, as uh, the snowdrops. That's kind of our plan going forward. Brilliant. Yeah. And I know, like, the the, the purest uh, snowdrop collectors won't like to hear me saying this, but when they're planted on mass, variety is less important. Yeah. It's... It it's more from the you're standing back looking at it and it it'll it's just breathtaking. But for me anyway, now maybe you'll contradict contradict me on that. But I think that the the variety is less important when it's you know when it's planted on mass like that. Yeah, it doesn't matter as much. The only thing we do have here because Angela started to plant all sorts of varieties. Not everyone would naturalize together. Funny enough. Uh, and it means that already our naturalized snowdrops are up because we've got ones weeks ahead of other ones. Most of the main season snowdrops yes. don't flower till about, I suppose, first, second week of February is their peak coming yep. into, you know, mid-February generally. All of month of February, you'll see a snowdrop no matter where you go. And our mm-hmm. ones um, come February will still be looking good, but at the moment they're looking fantastic because she planted loads of different right. varieties, some earlier, some later. And as a result, we've sort of got flowers pretty much from from mid-January, basically, until, I don't know, where. well, we've got flowers from mid-January in this garden, really, I could say, without uh, too much hesitation, and that'll continue on. But yeah, I agree, snowdrops on mask, while they're amazing, while they're lovely, while people spend mad money, but seeing them, just carpets and carpets, and uh, there's a church down here in Shinron Village, um, the Church of Ireland, and it is the same idea, carpeted, just like the garden here in snowdrops, and it's quite a sight to see, actually, as well, where anyone who comes to Belfield for yeah. snowdrop time, uh, it's worth going down to see the church too because it's just as impressive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the the open dates. I know you mentioned uh, the weekends, but just the, the, do you have the dates there to hand? I do. Uh, so the last two weekends in February, so from the Friday the seventeenth to Sunday the nineteenth, and then same again on the next weekend. So I think Friday twenty fourth to uh, Sunday twenty sixth, 
and we'll have and they're full days or do you need to pre-book or anything like uh, that we do 11 to 4 we're open i'm doing a tour at 2 p.m daily possibly another tour depending on how many people are around on any particular day okay um and you can book tickets on rhsi.ie uh, but you can also buy them on the gate. But we're trying to encourage people to pre-book if you can, just that we have an idea of numbers because we're a little bit worried about yeah, who's coming, and, yeah, parking yeah. and things and figuring all that out. But I'm sure we'll get it uh, all sorted out. But yeah, and I think the first Saturday there might be a couple of sellers here too, and there'll be tea and coffee and things available in the house as well. So yeah, um, hopefully there'll be a bit Brilliant, of a buzz yeah. about the place again, which kind of exciting to see after it been empty now for the last two years, really. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so a couple of sellers on the first Saturday, so people can go and have a look at all these varieties, have a look at the, the different planting schemes, cyclamens, cyclamens will be starting to come at that stage. Um, and there'll be sellers there as well, where you can where you can pick up some snowdrops in the green and yeah. start your own snowdrop And other garden. bits and pieces and all those kind of spring things. So as you say, the cyclamen, the aconite, all the early, you, you know, the garden just continues on here. The woodland is full of erythroniums and trilliums and all these really early spring things. And it's not just snowdrops here. I mean, snowdrops are the main attraction. But to be honest, there's lots of other, I think, they just uh, we classify them as spring treasures. Because uh, as mm-hmm. a spring garden, this is a really lovely spring garden. And it has some of the nicest kind of naturalization of spring gardens I've seen. Angela was putting in crocus and cyclamen and snowdrops in an area at the front of the house for the last couple of years and when I first came here it was a field and she's turned it right. into one of the nicest kind of naturalised areas of just these woodland bulbs I've ever seen um, and that's quite a sight to see so yeah uh, it's you know it's a bit of everything not just snowdrops but obviously snowdrops are one of the biggest connections we have here so yeah okay brilliant so that's sort of the, the, the first uh, as I say opening of the gates again yeah. um, looking at looking ahead further into the spring and into the summer possibly into the autumn is there anything else sort of planned at this stage or is it very much kind of we'll we'll see how we go or what's the plan? We have a plan. We haven't kind of officially announced it yet, but our plan would be okay. to do a couple of open days uh, throughout kind of the year. So every month there's generally something looking good in this garden. So hopefully we'd be opening every once a month kind of for a Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, same idea, 11 to 4, maybe 2 o'clock tours every single once a month, so we'll be doing one in March, hopefully, for the daffodils, one in April for tulips, possibly, in May for iris, and we'll continue on, and we'll kind of launch a whole series of programmes. I think we're going to try to get the snowdrops out of the way, and once we've done that, then we'll have learned a lot, and we'll be able to, you know, announce the rest of them. Yeah. So, uh, rather than have the garden open all the time, purely because, you know, there's so much to do here, I can't just be having the garden open, and that takes a bit of time. Um, and also just to work to something rather than have the garden open all the time um, because while Angela did a huge amount of work here um, throughout her life I suppose in latter years her mobility and also uh, just with COVID and different things you know she had been gardening a little bit less so there was a little bit of work to get the garden back up to the standard Mm -hmm. uh, I would have remembered um, from my early days and she was also you know of the opinion to you know let the garden go a bit wilder as everyone has in the last while um, she was very much, you know, keen on that. And it's true, there's areas of the garden here where we have, uh, you know, spotted orchids naturalizing in the lawn and bee orchids popping up. And, you know, it, it's a it's nice. a manicure garden in one sense, but equally it's kind of let go wild in other parts of the same garden. So it's, it's that fine balance. Um, so we're trying to do a little bit of all of that uh, throughout the whole site. So, yeah. That's yeah. Summer. I suppose the layout and the fact that there's woodlands and different types of woodlands and bog uh, boggy area, as you said, but also a two-acre walled garden. 
yeah uh, it probably gives you the ability to have the best of both worlds the the manicured borders in conjunction with the you know the naturalized yeah um, yeah and stroke stroke wilder areas. funny enough uh that kind of comes into the wall garden you know those meadows we have bulb meadows in the wild wall garden um so while that as you say that manicured kind of thing comes into the main area of the garden but uh, so does the wildness and you know obviously we've got acres and acres that are totally wild um, but yeah we're sort of taking a slightly different approach and letting the garden it's a fine balance with all things especially with garden you know to not let the garden look as though we're just not caring about it but also that you know we're, yeah. we're, we're kind of interested in that there's somebody there doing something yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things you can do like edges and things like that are always important and pathways as long as they're kind of maintained people then know oh you know people are in here doing things but uh, yeah, and we're yeah. going to keep that. We're not going to ever let this become an overly manicured garden, an overly garden garden. It's very much a, you know, it's a wild space. I've got actually an email from a guy who looked after owls, uh, I think with Birdwatch Ireland, and he said he's been trying to get the bell seal since Angela's passed away because he does owl surveys in the village and they keep coming back to here. Right. So we've got a population of owls somewhere down the woods, which is fantastic. Brilliant. So, you know, there's great yeah, wildlife class. here already, so we're hoping to encourage that too with what we're doing. Yeah. yeah, overall the plan sounds brilliant, and I like the the concept of not just having the garden open every day. You come in and see what you see, but rather having it targeted to, you know, specific time periods and and having certain plants as the as the showpiece during that opening. I like I like that idea. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you know it's great having the garden open all summer round. I'd love to do that, and hopefully in time. But uh, you know, we know we've got nice collections of things here at different times, and as long as uh, nature sort of plays ball and doesn't make things too hot or too cold. Hopefully, we'll get our day roughly right, yeah. and you know we'll have those things yeah. looking good at that time of year. So yeah, that's sort of brilliant. Plan. Yeah, in terms of a team, um, I'm sure now that you know, obviously, we're sort of exiting COVID-related restrictions and so on. That you'll be able to get students and back and and things like that back uh, on placements, yeah. just like you did, whatever, ten years ago. But um, do you have a team there at the moment? I know you have some volunteers, obviously, which is brilliant, and they're vitally important to, to a place like that. Um, but do you have a team there as well, or is it is it just yourself uh, plus volunteers for the moment, and students? Uh, so myself and the gardener who has been here when at this time, we're working together, um, and only a day a week. Um, she's in at the moment, and that kind of we're kind of you know passing over the garden in a way, and just getting getting I suppose our act together and figuring out how we can get the place. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. under control. But yeah, we don't have any team really apart from that. Hopefully, as you say, we we'll get students very soon. The volunteers are a vital part of it. Um, and just in this first year, while we get ourselves kind of off the ground, uh, there's not a huge amount of people here. Volunteers have been fantastic. There's some coming from as far as Galway and all sorts of places, um, and they're doing Trojan work every week here. So every Wednesday we have volunteers, right. and uh, if people are interested in that at all. Uh, the RHSI's website has more information on that. So it's great having people that come give a dig out, uh, you know, and the whole idea too, whenever we have volunteers here, I try to give them a little bit of a lesson. So, you know, it's not all one-sided. They get away with a bit of something too, because that's very much Angela's ethos and the ethos of the place that, you know, it's a place where people learn no matter what they're here to do. So, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, I think th- I think that's important. Yeah, and, it, and it's it's... I suppose it's a way of ensuring that they come back, that they're not just going there for a day's slog. They're actually going, uh, doing their bit of a, of a slog or a, bit, a little bit of work, 
but they're also picking up invaluable information that they can use themselves or, uh, yeah, and that's you know, back in their own gardens. Important in all aspects of gardening. I mean, that's how we've all learned, isn't it? We've picked up things from people who told us this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, I learned how to plant roses in this garden. Angela sent me out to plant roses and I didn't listen to her and uh, she had the head off me when she went out and said, I told you the plants were so deep and you didn't. So, uh, you know, you, you learn from right, those so, things and you never forget them. So what, what, was, what was her technique in planting roses then, just out of a matter of well, interest? Because a lot of people listening, uh, I've done a couple of episodes on roses, you know, various, in various ways. Yeah. And it's always a popular episode. So okay. obviously there's some bit of a tip there that might be interesting for someone. Well, she was always of the opinion, and I've always done this because of the time I got to head it off before, <laughs> is to um, bury <laughs> the rose as deep as you can. So dig a very deep hole and make sure you bury the roots up well under the ground and allow the kind of material that's been grafted to root itself. Um, and that way you'll okay. get a better rose. That was always her opinion. That's how she was taught. And I mean, it works. There's a lovely collection of roses here. Uh, what have you heard? Is there variant uh, camps on that or uh, no not really no I suppose there's uh, I, I haven't heard that one but I know that when I when I was talking to Angela at that time that she she mentioned a couple of I think it was uh, different daffodils and she was planting them at extraordinary depths that I couldn't believe and she said yeah. that that's what she found worked best and I forget I could be wrong in the numbers now but I thought she said like something like 12 or 14 inches now again I yeah. could be wrong there but I, I'm pretty sure that that's what she said, and it was interesting. You know, it's just interesting to hear different people and how they work. But obviously, it works. It works, and it did work for Angela. Um, I'm trying to think here. Like the rootstock has gone into the ground. Are you going literally with the with the bases of the branches at ground level? Is that? Yeah, at least. And if and the idea being that the rootstock of the rose will basically die, and the others will take hold. I think that was the whole theory there. And wow. Uh, I've done it and it seems to have worked. You know, whenever I planted a rose, I've made a crater rather than a yeah. hole that's, you know, dug as deep as possible. Because, you know, in any garden, if you're digging down more than 12 inches, you're you're lucky in some gardens to get half that. Um, so, yeah, just dig as deep a hole as possible and put it in. And so far, it seemed to work. Oh, that's, in, that's interesting because, like, no book that you'll read will tell you to go that deep. But... No, that doesn't always mean because sometimes books can be copied one to the other and you just don't always know. But uh, when somebody is doing it and they're getting success, then that's that's what you go with, I think. And same with the daffodils, actually. And you say that about the 12, 14 inches. And I can tell you from digging up a daffodil here only a day or two ago, that uh, that's certainly what she did because I tried to dig one up and I thought I'd never find the bottom of it. It just kept going and going and going. And I went, where in the name? And sometimes if you ever try to dig a daffodil out of, you know, an old garden, you'll find that a little bit, that they do go quite deep. Yeah. And I think that's where she got that from. Um, I remember we were in an old garden once and she wanted me to dig a daffodil. And I actually couldn't dig a hole deep enough to get this daffodil out. Wow. It's just the root, it had gone that down. Now, it was in kind of very fast, scrubby ground, so it was very hard to dig anyway. Yeah. But sometimes they will find their own. As everyone knows, plant bulbs, the bulbs find their own happy level and they'll go to whatever depth they yeah. need to survive. So, yeah, it's interesting. But Int- I say the book doesn't always tell you. No, not always. Not always. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, just a matter of interest. Um, want to go away from uh, Belfield for a second. I know that you created a meadow uh, in your own garden down in in Carlo or in your parents yeah on your parents land in Carlo um I guess that's heading for its third year now how how is it looking how's it going it's doing okay I was actually looking at it so I planted a couple of different mixes 
yeah. uh, in that meadow at the time from company down in Waterford. Yeah, blooming uh, nature. Yeah. To nature. Blooming yeah. nature, connected to nature, I think yeah. they are now. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and what happened was I did a few mixes, and the annual mix, of course, you're really meant to renew that every year, and I didn't last year. And it nearly looked as good in year two as it did in year one. A couple of things didn't make it through, but certain things certainly had the calendula, uh, so the pot marigolds, that very much had taken hold. And this year I'm kind of looking at it, and the perennial mixes are doing very well, and I'm actually very happy with how they're looking now. And uh, the, So my plan for the meadow this year would be to probably change the annual uh, mix and put a perennial mix down instead and maybe add a bit more yellow rattle to it. I never really succeeded with the yellow rattle. It's all about timing and just getting a couple of plants established because that weakens the grass. So that's sort of the plan for that meadow. And it's an interesting experiment. You know, that was an old field that was, you know, a couple of cattle grades on. So it went from a very yeah. kind of rich pasture to now this uh, slightly uh, different experiment. And it's working quite well. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from it. Um, and it's nice. It's nice to be able to learn a little bit um, about how to do it. And down here, we've got lots of more established meadows, and that'll be a yeah. very different challenge again. You know, they're not new meadows, but kind of old ones. So that in itself will be a, a learning curve, for sure. And do you know what were the meadows in Belfield? Were they were they sown originally, or were, were are these ones that have just, you know, developed naturally by not doing anything with them, basically? Developed naturally. In fact, one of them, funny enough, is at the front of the house where if anyone knows Belfield or the flyers even Angela used to send out, she used to put tulip red shine into the meadow. So it's red tulip through the meadow, which really looks stunning, uh, you know, when it flowered in late April into early May. Um, and in fact, when she passed away, that was in full bloom, that meadow, and it looked just really spectacular um, those couple of days. Uh, so that was early May when she died. And the meadows here, the first one at the front of the house is actually on an old tennis course. So... Years ago, that would have been a very formal, obviously, you know, really tightly mown lawn uh, when this house was, uh, I think, a hunting lodge or whatever it used to be back in the day. Um, And now it has been left for 40 odd years, not really, you know, looked after, but mown. And because of that, it's sort of now just poor grasses and things. And it's just obviously man-made levels and everything in that. But the grasses and things that are there now are very much been left and been managed and added to. You know, Angela would have added all sorts of stuff to it, but... Um, yeah, I suppose they're more semi-natural meadows. They're not totally, you know, untouched, but they're very much, yeah. for the last long number of years, they have been untouched. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they do. And There's a bit more managing in them, and I need to start looking at probably rejuvenating one or two of them because they can get a bit tired with thatch and moss and things in one or two areas. They're quite wet here, too, uh, which is another challenge. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, there is a couple of other things, obviously, during lockdowns or last couple of years garden conversations was a big part of what yourself and dear mcgavin were doing um yeah. and then you had the dirt podcast you brought out your own book you had a garden festival so you, you were busy very very busy not you know a lot of people weren't but you were very very busy during that period yeah well like all gardeners i suppose uh we didn't we enjoyed yeah. the nice weather and all that but um things went on for us and then myself and dermot sort of uh, yeah, we started to work together during the first lockdown and decided, let's do this, you know, live broadcast every night. And that escalated a kind of community of people built up around that. So we ended up doing the podcast. It was a summer that, or the series on RTE that summer called Gardening Together, uh, which in, oh, yeah, also, yeah, that also became the title of our book, actually. So we did release the book there at the start of this year, uh, which was Gardening Together and the podcast. So Dirt came out of that too. So all these things kind of came out of 
the two of us working together and kind of having our COVID and lockdown time together working on different projects. Uh, we both worked on various different garden projects all throughout this time too, as well as doing all these other things. So, um, yeah, it's been a very hectic, busy couple of years and a uh, lot, lot happened. It's interesting because I, I I did wonder that you know that because I've I've seen that you've 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 been traveling you've been in you know Wales working and you've been sort of moving around quite a bit and then I wondered you know in the Midlands and you're going to be positioned here I know you're not stuck there but you're positioned there and how 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 that would feel but yeah to have something that you you can sort of put your own stamp on over time would be nice yeah yeah absolutely like I have everywhere I went I've done a small bit of garden like over in uh, Carlo and my parents' garden. I did a chunk of garden in there in the corner of it. And over in Wales, I had a house there. Um, still do actually that I have built on the side of the hill in kind of the Snowdonia mountain range. And that's the fun Lovely. garden. That's very different. Uh, you know, that's kind of uh, garden in its place. So uh, all these gardens are very different spots. But learn a lot from them all. But I've never really had time to spend in any of them. So yeah, as I say, it's nice to know. Although it's kind of odd to be in one place, it's also going to be quite nice. But gardening takes time. I mean, yeah. I, I realised that from, you know, Angela had whatever, 16, 17 years in this garden and she did a huge amount. But, you know, if you had that time again... What- sort of, you were starting to round off. Um, it's funny because your line has crackled a couple of times, but I didn't want to interrupt you because I knew what you were saying was good. I hope it comes out well. Uh, also in the background, <laughs> I'm not sure if you can hear it, but I have a Jack Russell who I who I put into a run just before I come in to record, and I'm pretty sure there's a fox out roaming around somewhere because the dog is going absolutely... I, I heard, yeah, I was wondering. But uh, yeah. that was like, well, uh, loud. <laughs> it doesn't happen often, but I know by her bark that there's definitely a fox out there somewhere. Um uh, because okay. she only goes berserk a couple of times and it's always whenever you look out then there's a fox pottering around somewhere so <laughs> i suspected that what it is so anyone that's listening apologies for the little bit of crackling in the lion and for the dog barking but as i say the the, the content is still pretty good and um, paul uh, genuinely really happy to see what you're doing there and um i suppose congratulations and i know as as we said at the start it is a little bit bittersweet but i'm really looking forward to what you're doing uh to seeing what you're doing over there and the very very best to look with you know everything that happens in belfield over the next couple of years and thank you very very much for coming on master my garden podcast look thank you very much can't wait to welcome you and um lots of other people here uh so yeah just thank you very much Sam. yeah so that's been this week's episode a huge thanks to paul for coming on as i said at the start um one of the one of the brightest young horticulturists in ireland and definitely if you get a chance get over to to belfield and you know get to see the work that angela started and now that paul is continuing um you'll see you'll find all the information for it on the rhsi site um, you'll find paul himself online he's not hard to find on instagram and so on uh, but definitely worth checking out worth checking out belfield and you know seeing what's going to go on there over the next couple of years and it definitely sounds like exciting projects and uh, yeah as i say a, a great episode really interesting and lots of lots of exciting things for the irish horticultural scene here um that are worth keeping an eye on over the next couple of years And yeah, that's uh, pretty much this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And until the next time, happy gardening.